Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who was Thomas More? Knight, saint, chancellor and martyr, his life seems paradoxical. His son-in-law, William Roper, who wrote the first biography of More, described him as a man of singular virtue and of a clear, unspotted conscience, more pure and white than the whitest snow. And this is certainly one version that has come down to us. But he was also the scholar who wrote Utopia, among other works, and the Lord Chancellor for Henry VIII, who persecuted Protestant heretics. So who was he really? To peel off the onion layers of myth around this complex and controversial figure, I've invited Professor Tom Betteridge onto the podcast. Tom is Dean of the College of Business, Arts and Social Sciences at Brunel University London, and has written an implausibly large number of books and articles about the early Tudor court. Together we organised a big conference on Henry VIII at Hampton Court back in 2009 and edited a book called Henry VIII and the Court and Tom has edited many others including Henry VIII in History. His own books include Literature and Politics in the English Reformation and Writing Faith and Telling Tales, Literature, Politics and Religion in the work of Thomas More. And his is one of the most astute and brilliant minds working on the world of Henry VIII today as you'll soon hear. Tom, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm very much looking forward to this chat. And we are talking about another Thomas, Thomas More. It strikes me that the popular image we have of Thomas More is really contradictory. We have an idea of the saintly martyr who won't compromise his conscience, Robert Bolt's Man for All Seasons. And of course, that's actually drawing on mid-century biography, someone like W.R. Chambers, isn't there, who's picking up on the contemporary biography by Moore's son-in-law. And then you have in Wolf Hall, in Hilary Mantel's trilogy, the bigoted zealot who is martyring others. And then many students will just know him as the author of Utopias, as a sort of reasonable and brilliant political theorist. Which more is the real more? Well, I'm going to give the typical academic answer, none of them. I think Moore has really suffered from being caught in this polemical tug of war and a very retrospective one as well. So one of the key things we have to remember with Moore is there are no Catholics and Protestants when he's writing and when he's in power. Those terms are coming out and they're being produced. And in fact, particularly in terms of English Catholicism, the shaping of Moore or the creation of Moore is part of that definition. So, of course, he wouldn't have wanted or wouldn't have understood the idea that you could have this division in Christendom. He was very opposed to it. So he doesn't fit into our post-Reformation paradigms at all, really. Very, very quickly, they try to force him into them. 
and it doesn't work. And he has suffered across the board in all sorts of ways, in quite strange ways as well. So some of the strange things you see about his marriage, weird stuff, you know, about he didn't really want to get married or he only got married the second time, just kind of sort of, well, not purgatory, but there's some very strange ideas out there about more, which are very unhelpful. Okay, so let's dial back and look at his life chronologically. So he's born in 1478, sent as a child to the household of Cardinal John Morton, and we're told that Morton prophesied he'd prove a marvellous man. He's educated in classics at Oxford and then admitted to Lincoln's Inn in February 1496. How do you think his early adult life shaped his identity and his thinking? It's really difficult because it's so obviously full of stories which are kind of made up to explain the more he then becomes. So there's this story, and this has always amused me because I'm a man of the theatre. There's this story that when he was in Morton's household, he interrupted the players and took part in the theatre or some sort of drama. And this is always used to kind of depict him as a very clever, witty person. I've always thought, if it happened, that must have been so acutely annoying (laughs) for the actors. And I don't kind of really believe it either, if I'm honest. If you were in a great hall and there was an entertainment going on, either it's the kind of entertainment where lots of people are taking part, which is quite possible, or it was a proper formal dialogue or rhetorical exercise, in which case it wouldn't really be possible. So it's interesting where the stories are shaped and grow up around him. I think that in many ways Moore had, yeah, I would say a relatively traditional education in the house of a nobleman, who obviously had an association with his family, with his father, an education designed to prepare him for public life. And whilst he's training as a lawyer, he also spends some years at the nearby charter house and doesn't become a monk, but is this right? But subjects himself to the discipline of the monks. So this is when you first get into one of the real problems with Moore. He lives in the precinct of charter house or possibly next to charter house. So this comes from, I think, from a letter from Erasmus. At no stage does anyone suggest he lives in Charterhouse or as a monk. He may be living near them or next to them. Of course, that's a completely different thing. It's quite possible that, you know, it's in London. It's quite possible he just has a house near Charterhouse and chooses to go to the chapel there. I think the evidence for him ever actually living as a monk or actually living in Charterhouse is really pretty limited. And that's interesting because part of the story that we're told about more certainly is one about austerity and monastic type behaviour. Doesn't his son-in-law, William Roper, say something about him having a hair shirt and being self-mortifying? And all these things seem like they might have been something he'd adopted at Charterhouse. But if that's an origin myth and not actually true, then that changes things. Part of the problem is that people want more to look like an exception, a saintly figure. A lot of his devotional practices were quite norm pre-Reformation. Now, I'm not sure that a hair shirt would have been, but a lot of the other things he's said to have done actually are quite standard. Now, of course, he was a deeply committed Christian. I'm not questioning that at all. There's a real move in this period of very committed, godly laymen and lay women, of course. That's part of what the Reformation comes out of. More is very much of his time. So what evidence do we have of his character then? It's very difficult to separate out the myth from the reality. If you see, for example, the amount of effort that goes into interpreting the famous Holbein picture, this incredible amount of effort to talk about it as this very special picture, that it tells us all kinds of things about Moore, 
tells us all kinds of things about him being a modern family man, respecting the intimacy of the family. Of course, all of that is very, very difficult to prove. It's by Holbein. He would have put the things in he thought were necessary to create the image. Holbein's not committed to realism because he's a Renaissance artist. He's going to put in the pictures of things he thinks are important for the setting to create the image. And this isn't the criticism. It's just that's how art is working at that time. So the one thing you can say absolutely about Moore is he's a very committed Christian humanist. And would you just gloss for us what humanism meant at that time? So it's very difficult. And again, this is when it all becomes difficult with Moore because humanism is about a certain commitment to classical learning. It's a commitment to the idea of return to the fount of classical learning. In some ways, in modern historiography, it sometimes is kind of talked about as if there's some inherent tension between humanism and Christianity. And clearly, that's completely untrue. That's not right at all. You know, Moore was a very committed Christian and a very committed humanist. So humanism in some ways, is best understood as constructing itself against scholasticism. So it, that's very much where more is coming from. And it's interesting what you said about portraits. You and I edited a book together some years ago, and Brett Dolman wrote that really wonderful essay in it, which I think about often, which is about the portraits of Henry VIII's wives and how we shouldn't, to summarise, read character into them. And it's so tempting, isn't it, with these pictures especially Holbein's, I think, because they're so wonderful. <laughs> you feel like they must give us character clues. But yeah. They can't really. You know, they are wonderful pictures. They are contemporary versions of Moore. There's nothing wrong with interpreting them. It's just being very conscious of the extent to which they're very knowing. And in many ways, when they're trying or when they're being as kind of realist as they can be, or they're attempting that, that's when they're most knowing. Although I was chatting with some Holbein scholars the other day on the pod and we talked about the wonderful sketch of Lady Rich, Sir Richard Rich's wife, and how she, in the sketch, has this mole on her chin with three really quite long, dark hairs protruding from it. And they were saying, you know, this is Holbein having his fun, really. Like, it's not in the final picture, but it's in the sketch. And as if he's really saying what he thinks of her. Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. But I think it's also indicative that it's not in the final picture. Holborn's a great, great artist. But I think that part of the reason the Moore portrait arguably is very overinterpreted is this desire to kind of stabilise different versions of Moore. I just think he fundamentally doesn't fit into some of the stories that people want to tell. Perhaps the first important work from him, the one I'm thinking of is The History of Richard III, or at least he starts producing that first, it's published later. And it's a curious work which we should talk about. Curious in part because it's simultaneously written in Latin and English and they aren't translations of each other. And it's telling the story of 1483, which is, of course, the death of Edward IV and the princes in the town, the coronation of Richard III and so on. What do you think we should make of his history and why do you think he wrote it or wrote them so i think the reason he wrote them is the latin version is more sophisticated and arguably more critical i would see them very much within quite a classical tradition i mean what he's actually interested in is richard iii as a tyrant that's the thing he really wants to talk about he doesn't really want to talk about richard iii as king he gets quite bored it seems to me in the text really quite quickly that the bits of both the English and Latin versions where there's, to use a rather subjective phrase, real energy, is the process by which Richard becomes king. So he has this lovely story of Richard, or not Richard himself, but some of his minions trying to get the alderman to shout for him in London. 
and them having to pack the crowd at the back because when he's first announced as king there's just a murmur and people are unhappy so they have to make sure people cheer throughout his career actually in all of his writing he's very interested in the relationship between power and performance and that's one of the things which comes through in Moore's Richard III and it's the thing that Shakespeare picks up in his play that Richard's kingship in some ways is all about performance and it's more that gives us the description of Richard as being crock-backed <laughs> and his left shoulder being high on his right, isn't it? Yeah, and also the stuff about him having teeth and nails when he's born. And, and I think that this is because he's writing a kind of a tradition in which the physical manifestations of evil are the norm, that you can tell Richard's going to be evil because of physical things. I think that's him experimenting with models of history, frankly. And he's often cited as quite a crucial source in talking about how the princes in the tower died. He comes up with a version where Sir James Tyrrell smothers the boys in their beds. Should we believe anything about that? And then about them buried, aren't they, at the stairfoot? I think the thing we should believe is Richard III kills them. I really enjoyed it. It's Josephine Tay, isn't it, her book about Richard didn't really kill them. They were still alive when Henry VII turned up. I think that's naive, I'm afraid. I think if someone stands in the way of you getting the English throne, things like family ties may well go out the window. I think he definitely kills them. I think how it happens, who knows. I don't quite know why they would bother with the smothering, given that they're not going to show the bodies anyway. You would do that kind of thing if you wanted to be able to say they died of illness. Yes. But if we think about Moore's writing of history... The idea, we're told that his account is derived from a confession that has been made by James Tyrrell before his execution in 1502, which tells us something about the sort of history that Moore is purportedly writing. Yes, but Moore goes out of his way to make fun of that kind of history. So, of course, he has that wonderful moment where the Scrivener is writing in Hastings' death sentence, I think, in advance of Hastings being condemned. And the whole of Richard III, both versions, more raises quite interesting questions about what you can really know about the past. And in particular around written records. So what he's kind of saying there, or what he's demonstrating to us, is you can have this written record which seems to say this is what happened. But he's shown us as readers that this written record is being made up by Richard III and his minions. How wonderfully postmodern of him. This is why postmodernism is nonsense, but I shouldn't say that. It, it, all of that stuff, they all know that stuff. Moore knows that history is being written and he's writing history. It's a very knowing piece of historical writing. So even in the act of writing a history, he's showing that written histories lie. Yes, that's exactly right. In the same way as Utopia, he writes this very serious book about you know reform and how we make the world better. And all the way through, he's saying, by the way, you know it's Utopia. You know, it's nowhere. You know, this is meaningless. And then Rachel is called Speaker of Nonsense. That's what he does. So for those who read this some time ago, Utopia, which comes out in 1516, is this dialogue between two learned men, one of whom is a character called Morris, which is the Latin Moor, and it sort of begins in this kind of real-life setting of Moor heading off to Antwerp to meet his friend, and then encountering Raphael Hithlado, which you've just said means purveyor of nonsense, who's an adventurer who's just returned from the island of Utopia. And there are two 
things to ask about this, one of which you just already touched on, which is this age-old question posed to many a student, is Moore's Utopia satire or the blueprint for an ideal society? And then the second aspect is, and so what does this utopian society look like? So the first thing to say is Utopia, the island, is not an ideal state at all. It's not Christian. Utopia, the island, is a place without any grace. So Moore creates this state, which people are right, is like a monastery, but it's like a monastery which doesn't have redemption. So he makes a big point about the fact that no one sins in Utopia, basically. But they largely don't sin because there are no pubs or brothels or no money. I mean, it's not that they're good people, the Utopians. It's that they don't have the opportunity to sin. At one level, it's returning to some very deep questions within Christianity about perfectibility and non-perfectibility and original sin. Because, you know, Utopia is in some ways a land without original sin because there is no sin, but it's also a land without any real beauty, any real redemption and no grace. That's fascinating because what you've done is you've said... The answer to this question that every student studying international relations or English or history or politics has to write an essay on at some point in their university careers is it's both of these things, that it is both a criticism <laughs> and it's also not a blueprint, but it is criticising European society at the same time, doing so through this imaginary world that he doesn't intend. But so many things about it have been held up as ideals, that all things are held in common or that war is only fit for beasts, or that, you know, gold is only used for fetters. And I always think that we've actually sort of arrived at one of them, which is that people can see each other naked before deciding to marry, and we've clearly adopted that one. But do you think there was anything good in this, or was he just having fun and choosing things that were completely unimaginable otherwise? One of the things I think Moore really does get is humanism, very deep. And he also gets the pressures to create in the Reformation. So with humanism, he is getting very deeply into some of the fantasies and ideas which run through that movement. We need to be clear about what those might mean. So, you know, approximately the same time that he's writing Utopia, they're reforming the city of Frankfurt, let's say, as an example, closing down the brothels, getting things put into order, but also doing things in relation to the Jewish population, which is quite disturbing because they're creating an ideal state. And I think Moore does, and it's an incredible act to kind of understand that within that desire for all-encompassing universal reform, there's quite a disturbing, violent side to it. So Utopia, the island, is about the most important sin it's meant to be protected against is pride. So everything is held in common. Everything is, yes, shared, you're right. People can't really be prideful because they have no ability to do that. And of course, at one level, the whole place is an act of pride. It's set up by this one man, Utopus, who sets out all the rules. So really deep within it is a quite disturbing idea about the way that power works. And it's as if Utopia is regulated to the point of crushing self-will. That's the impression I'm getting from what you're saying. That's totally right. So that's why there is no possibility of salvation, because there is no choice. There is no free will at all. There's no autonomy or agency. They can't choose to be good in the same as they can't choose to be bad. So obviously we've talked about his humanism and I suppose one of the things they discuss actually, Morris and Hitler Day, is about whether one should be involved in the res publica, the public affairs. And about the time that Utopia is published, Moore is doing just that. He's entering public service. He's come to the attention of the king. So I don't suppose we can understand exactly why he did that, though you might be able to help us, but tell us about his record of 
service to the king? One thing I would say is that, and again, this is where the humanist thing becomes problematic from some modern perspectives, is probably one of the writers which really influences more is Augustine. St. Augustine has this lovely line in the On Christian Doctrine where he says, human life would be richer indeed if we couldn't use our reason to live better lives. I'm paraphrasing there. Obviously, utopia is a kind of illustration of the wisdom of that statement because actually utopia is a pretty wretched place, really. There's a strange version of Moore where he goes into working for the king and for Wolsey's cause he's Latin secretary. He doesn't really want to. It's kind of an accident. That's all real nonsense. I mean, you don't get the post that Moore got without working really hard at it. It's just a foolishness to think that this wasn't a man who was deeply committed to having a career in royal service and made that happen. And in the same way as this strange idea that he wanted to be a monk, but his father wouldn't let him. Well, there's no real evidence of that. And it's not even clear how that would happen. Moore chose and fought hard to get these positions at court in the government. And I think it's kind of rather unfair on him that he's this deeply committed Christian humanist, intellectual, and he chooses to work really hard in the government. To kind of portray this as if that wasn't a deliberate choice, I think it's very unfair on Moore, actually. And one thing he's famed for being involved in, and I wonder if you have an idea of how much he is involved in, is writing Henry VIII's Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Defence of the Seven Sacraments, against Martin Luther. How much is that Moore's work? I think it's very difficult to know. I suspect an awful lot of it is the work of a whole bunch of people. All the evidence we have of Henry is he's a trump. There's no way he's writing any of that, really. He would set it up, start it off, and then leave it to lots of other people. That's such a calumny against Henry VIII. I mean, he's <laughs> bad, but come okay, on. OK, that may be unfair, but he's not a person to spend a lot of time writing something like that. I'm sure he was very committed to it. I'm sure that he probably read it and notated it because we've got other documents where he did it. And I would be very surprised if Moore wasn't involved, but I suspect lots of other people were as well. And what's the relationship between Henry VIII and Moore? There's stories of Henry VIII meeting Moore very early. I think that we always have to remember that Moore is not aristocracy. So to jump ahead 10 years to the bad ending of it all, one of the reasons it's so scandalous when Henry VIII effectively executes him is that Moore's a civil servant. I'm sure that Henry knew him and knew of him. Equally, Henry is very conscious of people's status. But aren't the stories of the two of them walking on the roofs talking, you know, being arm in arm, looking at the stars and things like that. I don't know the source for those. Possibly it's Roper. No, there are stories. And there's a story by, I think, Erasmus, who, let's face it, is not the most trustworthy source for anything, really. And obviously there's lots of stories around when he gets made Chancellor and those kind of things, and Henry promising him not to bring up the divorce. So those stories do exist. And of course, Tudor government isn't like modern government. It's very formal and then simultaneously very informal. So I'm sure they did, but I, I find it very implausible, the idea of Moore as Henry's friend or mate or those kind of things. Who are the people? Henry Morris, Thomas Wyatt. Those are Henry's mates. They're not like Moore. That's interesting. So... The scholar who's working as a civil servant, or maybe the archbishop like Cranmer. Cranmer's not Henry's mate either, is he, really? No, absolutely not. Because also they know who he is. They have no illusions about Henry. This is all just pure interpretation and speculation because we have the stories and they're limited and they're all being seen for a prism. But no, I don't think that. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure I've come across the interpretations where they say Moore's a father figure to Henry VIII. I don't find that at all plausible. I don't think either of the men would want that.
Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so in the 1520s, fast-forwarding slightly, but we've got 1528, his dialogue concerning heresies which refuted the writings of William Tyndale, among others. And then a year later, he succeeds Wolsey as Lord Chancellor when Wolsey fails to deliver the annulment. And one of the things that we note about him as Lord Chancellor is that he burns heretical books and later heretics themselves. So how should we understand this murderous piety? Obviously, he doesn't burn heretics himself. There's a terrible scene in, I think it was in the television version of Hilary Mattel's Wolf Hall, where they had a scene of Henry saying to Moore, how many have you burnt? And of course, heresy trials are the responsibility of the church. Moore doesn't try anyone for heresy. The church does hand heretics over to the secular arm to carry out the sentence, the burning. And therefore, you could, at a stretch, argue that when Moore is Lord Chancellor, he is responsible for people being executed. But he is emphatically not part of a process which condemns people for heresy. The only lay person to do that is, of course, our old friend Henry VIII. The trial of John Lambert seems to think he has the right to take part in a heresy trial and pronounce the sentence. And that's scandalous. That's fascinating. So his position as Lord Chancellor has been interpreted, I suppose, as being that he is legally responsible, he's pronouncing sentence, he's judging people guilty. But you're saying 
He's just doing his job. Well, no, he definitely doesn't pronounce people guilty because that's the job of the church. I mean, heresy is a religious crime. One of the sort of disturbing things about the Henrician church settlement, which kind of disappears very quickly when you start getting to Lutheran James, is the kind of collapse of secular religious authority in judicial matters. I mean, there's something quite disturbing about it. And Moore doesn't condemn people in a legal sense. He certainly does condemn people in his writing for being heretics. And he writes some pretty vicious stuff. That's not the same. Just to push it a bit further, then what you're saying is that much of this stuff that's been associated with him, which really depends on him being sort of personally responsible for people going to the stake, is just another misinterpretation of his character. He is probably a kind of fairly typical Christian in the 1520s in thinking that some people are getting it wrong and that they need to be corrected. Again, it's a real illustrationist thing of what we get wrong because the other thing we have to say is Moore was very clear that heretics should be burnt alive. I mean, that's a horrific thing to do to a human being. There were people who didn't think that was okay. Most famously, his mate Erasmus. You know, and frankly, a kind of cursory reading of the New Testament would suggest that burning fellow Christians alive is not really on. So I think it's really important to get right where Moore's coming from. He very explicitly says he approves of the execution of heretics. And he definitely, and I can't remember if he actually says this, but he celebrates them being burnt alive. That was the mainstream opinion in this period. It is not the case that everyone thought it was a good idea and approved of it. There were people who strongly disapproved of it. What Moore's doing here, so his attackers, as it were, talk about him condemning people for heresy, which is not the case. But then his defenders try and say that, well, everyone thought this. And that's also not the case. You know, even under Mary Tudor, there are people saying, this is not a good idea, we're just making Protestant martyrs, let's stop this. It's not that it would have been impossible for him to make the point that this is probably not the right thing to do. Also at the same time as he's writing a dialogue concerning heresies, he is, of course, and we've mentioned him already, becoming a patron to Holbein. And he's the door through which Holbein walks into Henry VIII's court and eventually becomes his painter. So I suppose we need to think about both him as a kind of patron of the arts, but also the fact that we need to put more in the kind of European context. It's because he's got his friend Erasmus, it's because he's got his friend in Antwerp, Pieter Gillis, writing to him about Holbein, this German painter, that he hosts him. See, I think the interesting thing about the European thing, particularly post-Brexit, frankly, is Moore's refusal to agree with Henry's plans is very, very European. I mean, it's his sense of the wholeness of European Christianity, by which, of course, he means Catholicism. It's his very real kind of emotional, deep emotional and intellectual commitment to that ideal, the unity of Christendom. That, above all, is what's most important to him. And, and that comes out of, I mean, what that does definitely come out of, Susie, is his engagement with these European figures, with people like Erasmus. You know, he feels part of a community of European scholars and he regards the Henrician Reformation as just a nonsense. The analogy he uses is London can't declare itself independent of England. So is that why he resigns his post as Lord Chancellor in 1532? Yeah, I think it is. Because there are times later where he says, I'm quite happy to accept Anne Boleyn as Queen. It's not the marriage and divorce per se. What it is, is the 
breaking up of the unity of Christendom. And he says to Henry really clearly in one of the letters from the Tower, if you could get a general council together to agree this, or if you can claim, and this is a kind of provocative thing for more to say, that you've had a divine vision, that's fine. You know, then I would accept it. You know, one of the things which happens to Moore is, in particular in the Mary Tudor, is, is he's turned into a papalist and he really isn't. He says a number of times things which are quite critical of the papacy. He's clearly of the opinion that a general council could have delivered whatever Henry wanted. Now, of course, he knows there's no possibility of that happening. But what really matters to him, and this is why the conscience thing doesn't really work for us, because we think of conscience as individuals. And for Moore... Doing something out of an act of conscience outside the unity of the Catholic Church is almost meaningless. Now, he must have recognised how dangerous it was to resign yeah. and not go along to Anne's coronation. And Roper attributes to him some extraordinary flashes of wit, which you haven't talked about. I love, you know, if my head could win him, meaning Henry a castle in France, it should not fail to go or politics be king's games and for the more part played on scaffold so he had a shrewd understanding of the nature of the decision he was making and its possible consequences didn't he yeah and also he had a real understanding of the arguably more so than other people about quite what henry was doing so again it's not the marriage per se which is the issue it's the claiming to be head of the church that's the real issue and then the things which fall out of that of course more can't go along with because He's a very committed person. He understands the meaning of the acts which are going on. But the thing that Moore finds totally unacceptable, which he understands, and arguably other people didn't really understand, Moore has a kind of almost visceral, but certainly a very deep Christian understanding of the unity of the church and that Henry is doing something fundamentally dangerous to that unity. And I think that's why he stands down. He knows he can't compromise on this. And of course, in some ways, that's proved to be right. So he's asked to swear an oath of succession, as indeed every man in the country is. And it's not so much the contents of that oath, which is being true to Anne Boleyn, as the preamble about Henry being supreme head. And let's talk about the fact that he's put into the Tower as a result of not doing this. And the act of treasons for maliciously denying the royal supremacy is passed while he's in the Tower. So it's a very slippery charge against him. But it's worse than that because he doesn't refuse to take the oath of supremacy. He remains silent. Then the debate becomes whether or not to remain silent is malicious. What they effect end up saying is, yes, you can't have non-malicious silence. But that's what I'm saying, Susie. It's a scandal, Moore's condemnation execution. It's not something which should be happening because he is just a civil servant. Why not just take all his money off him, put him in prison? It's vicious. Vicious and performative, perhaps, trying to demonstrate something? Yeah, totally performative. And I fear also Henry trying to demonstrate to himself that he's right. It's like poor old Anne Boleyn. You know, the way that Anne Boleyn has this ludicrous set of charges levelled against her because Henry has to prove to himself that it's all her fault. He's always got to be the victim, even though he's the king. So it's kind of proving to himself. Obviously, Moore was a very bad person because he was condemned for treason. I will give you the Trump analogy there because clearly Henry's doubling down. He's saying it's not just that this man won't or remain silent rather than giving the oath. That has to become something more than what it is in the first place. Yeah, and also I can't accept even passive. I mean, it might even be too extreme to say resistance, but I can't accept passive. People have to say to me that I am right. 
That is the only option. And with Moore in particular, he closes it right down so that the only choice is not simply to go along, because Moore constantly says, I'm happy to do that. You have to say that you fully agree with everything I've done. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I can never get over is that in that oath, it says that they should do so without scrupulosity of conscience, that they should say this oath and they cannot think something different either. No, it's a disturbing act. I mean, it's like, this is a strange parallel to draw, but it's like what happens when the Puritans get into a terrible state about committing idolatry in their minds. It's because you could imagine stuff. It's the same kind of thing. It's this idea that we're not just going to control what people say, we're also going to try and control their imagination. So isn't it Henry Norris who gets executed for saying he's going to step into a dead man's boots? And that's, again, you see, kind of the implication is you were imagining the death of the king and therefore that is inherently treasonable. In the Tudor context, it seems to me really quite extreme. His wife and his daughters begged him to give in and swear the oath of succession. At what point does it just become downright obstinacy? I don't think it is obstinacy. I think it is understanding quite what the implications are. So I think that people are saying, look, just go along with it. And that's totally understandable. And let's face it, all of us would probably do it. So I think there's a lot of things, I'm going to say wrong with Bolt's play, but there are a lot of things which are kind of historically very problematic. Where I think he does absolutely get it right is that Moore understands what this is really about, what it would really mean to swear this oath of allegiance. And therefore he just cannot compromise. That's the bit which is kind of, in inverted commas, modern. This understanding that there are things you can't compromise on. The other question I have is, how much does it rest on the perjury of Sir Richard Rich? In the specific moment, it's quite important, but they're always going to find a reason. We're not talking about a fair judicial process. We're talking about a process where they keep changing the laws until they can execute him. Henry is committed to, he's just not having more, not saying, yes, everything you've done is right and I agree with you. Some people have said that the decision not to recognise Henry as supreme head of the Church of England is a form of suicide. What would you say to that? That's similar to me to the idea that Moore was happy in the Tower because he could be a monk. I think they are borderline deeply offensive ideas. He was a family man. He chose to get married twice. He had a full and happy life and he was a deeply committed Christian. I think you lessen his sacrifice, frankly, by talking in those sort of terms. He knew exactly what he was doing, he knew why he was doing it, and he made a conscious decision to do it. Absolutely. So on the 6th of July, 1535, he was taken to Tower Hill. Roper tells us that he joked with the master lieutenant, I love this, I pray you see me safe up and for my coming down, let me shift myself. And comforted his executioner, pluck up thy spirits, man, and be not afraid to do thine office, my neck is very short. And then 400 years later, Pope Pius XI canonised Moore as a Catholic saint and martyr. So, Tom, what should be our final word on him, do you think? So one of the things just to notice in passing is Moore is the first lay person to be canonised for about 500 years. So canonisation becomes reserved for churchmen from about 1400. It's not from 1500. Moore's the, one of the first to be canonised. So that's just an interesting point of history. What do you think that tells us? Well, I think it tells us a lot about reasons why the Reformation happened. The church was, pre the Reformation, closing down roots for religiosity and spiritual excellence among the laity. 
So the clericalism of the 15th century leads directly to the anti-clericalism of the 16th century, for sure. And interestingly, Moore can be really quite anti-clerical. I think the thing about Moore is there's a sort of simple point and a much more important point. The simple point is it's almost impossible to exaggerate how distorted our ideas about people can be from the past. This thing of him being either a mad, persecuting religious fanatic and on the other side, this saintly figure who always wanted to be a monk and was happy in the tower. These two things are just... I'm getting to do a very unacademic thing and say I think they are just wrong. And to make the more profound point, I think one of the problems with it is, is that they undermine quite how impressive Moore is. You know, he's a very, very clever man. I'm not saying that. He's a very clever and inspirational man. He chooses to enter government service. That's a proper conscious choice. He's very committed to the idea of protecting ordinary Christians from what he sees as the dangers of heresy. Okay, so that's something which he's committed to. There's a pastoral side to that. I think a lot of his anti-heretical writings are extreme and over the top because he fears the impact of heresy. Now, he may be right, he may be wrong. And they do sound at the moment when you read them, some of them are really quite shocking, particularly celebrates people being burnt alive. But I think part of the reason he does that is out of a concern for people's souls. That's what he's worried about. You know, he wants to scare people. He wants to make the point to people that don't go there. And if you read his anti-heretical works, and you get around from all the hardline polemical stuff. They're full of wonderful, beautiful images of the unity of the church, which of course goes. That's the one thing the Reformation destroys. So I do think actually, and this is not necessarily a very popular modern position, I think he is in many ways an impressive figure in the sense of how he gives up life for an act of conscience, for an act of political and religious principle. Tom, I have loved this conversation. It has been superb. I do actually feel like I have a completely different understanding of more as a result of our conversation. So can we have more conversations, please, about things where you can school me? We can have more, more. <laughs> and I said that because I think more would have enjoyed it because he liked people make jokes about his name. You have been an inspiration. Thank you very much for spending this time with me to talk about him. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been a real pleasure, Susie, and I've really enjoyed it. Before we finish, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do it without you. I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.